Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, where we bring you conversations with the world's greatest writers and thinkers. The ink is almost dry on our programme for Hay Festival 2022, which is out next Tuesday the 5th of April. If you want to get three days booking priority, you can become a friend of the Hay Festival by going to hayfestival.org forward slash friends. Do have a look on Tuesday because there's plenty to get your teeth into. This week we're celebrating The Salt Path by Raina Wynne, an inspirational memoir about her and her husband Moth's 630-mile walk around the southwest coast path. Their trip began after Raina and Moth lost their home of 20 years and just days later Moth was diagnosed with a terminal degenerative condition. Raina decided later to write up the notes from their walk as a gift to her husband and accidentally became a best-selling author. This is a mesmerising love story that encompasses the power of nature, overcoming loss and finding home when home doesn't exist. I think if I'm going to tell you about how we came to walk, I really need to go back to the very beginning of the story. So I think, um, go back to when I was a teenager and I was sitting in, um, in a canteen in our college and drinking a cup of tea, which if you've read the book, you know, I drink an awful lot of. And uh, I looked up and through, through a room that was not quite as full as this, but quite full, there was a parting in the heads. And at the other side of the room, there was this young man in a white shirt and dazzling blue eyes, dipping a Mars bar in a cup of tea. And I thought, let's go on for me. <laughs> But even in those very early days together, we sort of had this dream that we would be able to buy a place in the hills, you know, maybe somewhere that needed some work that we could restore, and somewhere where we could create a life together that would be a life that we designed. And eventually, by the time I was about 30, we did, we did just that, and we bought our ruin, and we put all of our time and our effort and our money into restoring it, and uh, we converted some of the outbuildings into holiday lets, which gave us a source of income, and we grew vegetables and sheep, and our two children grew up there. Um, so it was, it was our absolute idyll, it was, it was the place that we had dreamt of. But unfortunately, running in the background during part of those 20 years that we spent um, in our little dream home um, was a a financial dispute we'd had with a friend, a a lifetime friend, which unfortunately ended in a court case that saw us being served with an eviction notice to leave our home, to leave the place that we dreamt of and put 20 years of our life into. And I thought that was the worst possible thing that could ever happen to me. But then, in that same awful week, as we were packing 20 years of life into boxes, um, my husband Moth had a a hospital appointment that we thought was going to be fairly routine, but it turned out not to be. He was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease, corticobasal degeneration, that has no treatment and no cure. And basically, there was no help that they could offer us other than maybe a little bit of physio to keep moving for just a little bit longer. Um, so it was in the last minutes of, of the day in our home when the bailiffs were knocking at the door and we were just hiding under the stairs because we didn't want to take that last step over the threshold, knowing we would never, ever go back. 
And it was in that moment that I saw a book in a packing case. It was a book I'd read years before uh, by Mark Warrington, 500 Mile Walkies, where this young man walked around the southwest coast path with his dog. And just in that desperate moment, the idea of just packing a rucksack and going for a walk seemed the most obvious thing to do. And, and you were you were in your 50s, you were just 50. Yes. And yes. You, you were just taking off into the wide blue yonder. Yes. Do you, would you like to read a little bit about the beginning of that journey? Okay. Um, um, if I read the prologue, um, because if you haven't read the book, I don't know, has anyone read the book? Has anyone read the book? <laughs> One or two. Okay, one or two. But for, maybe for the benefit of those who haven't, um, I'll read the prologue because it sort of best sums up the, the rest of the book, really. There's a sound to breaking waves when they're close, a sound like nothing else. The background roar is unmistakable, overlaid by the swash of the landing wave and then the sucking noise of the backwash as it retreats. It was dark barely a speck of light, but even without seeing it, I recognised the strength of the swash and knew it must be close. I tried to be logical. We'd camped well above the high tide line, the beach shelved away below us, and beyond that was the water level. It couldn't reach us. We were fine. I put my head back on a rolled-up jumper and thought about sleep. No, we weren't fine. We were far from fine. The swash and suck wasn't coming from below. It was right outside. Scrambling through the green-black light in the tent, I tore open the flaps. Moonlight cut across the cliff tops, leaving the beach in complete darkness, but lighting the waves as they broke into a mess of foam. The swash already running over the sand shelf, ending just a metre from the tent. I shook the sleeping bag next to me. Moth, moth, the water, it's coming. Throwing everything that was heavy into our rucksacks, shoving feet into boots, we pulled out the steel pegs and picked the tent up whole, still erected with our sleeping bags and clothes inside, the ground sheets sagging down to the sand. We scuttled across the beach like a giant green crab to what had the night before been a small trickle of fresh water running towards the sea, but was now a metre-deep channel of seawater running towards the cliff. I can't hold it high enough, it's going to soak the sleeping bags. Well, do something, or it won't be just the sleeping bags. We raced back to where we started from. As the backwash headed out, I could see the channel flattened to a wide stretch of water only a foot deep. We ran back down the beach, the swash landing far above the shelf and rushing over the sand towards us. Wait for the backwash, then run to the other side of the channel and up the beach. I was in awe. This man, who only two months earlier had struggled to put on his coat without help, was standing on a beach in his underpants, holding an erected tent above his head, with a rucksack on his back saying, run, run, run. We splashed through the water, the tent held high, and climbed desperately up the beach as the swash pushed at our heels and the backwash tried to draw us out to sea. Stumbling through the soft sand, our boots brimming with salt water, we dropped the tent down at the foot of the cliff. You know, I don't think these cliffs are stable. We should move further along the beach. What? How could you be so careful at three in the morning? No. We'd walked 243 miles, slept wild for 36 nights, eating dried rations for most of that time. The Southwest Coast Path guidebook stated that we would reach this point in 18 days and directed us towards delicious food and places to stay with soft water and hot... Oh, even hot water and soft beds. <laughs> the timescale and comforts were all out of our reach, but I didn't care. 
Moth ran up the beach in the moonlight in a ripped pair of underpants that he'd been wearing for five days straight, holding a fully erected tent above his head. It was a miracle. It was as good as it gets. The light started to break over Porcellus Cove as we packed our rucksacks and made tea. Another day ahead, just another day walking, only 387 miles to go. So, so one of the um, one of the, th- the myths um, that you you sort of skewer in that is it's, that that book was called Five Hundred Mile Walkies. Yes, but it wasn't five hundred miles. No, the unreliability of literature. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we were a little shocked to find there was another 130 on top of that. <laughs> no, I don't think we realised either at the time that um, the coast path um, has an ascent that's equivalent to climbing Everest nearly four times. So it's quite up and down, to say the very least. <laughs> yeah. And you, you um, so, so we start with you just cowering um, and... Uh, and and then setting forth, but you're leaving behind your son and your daughter, although they're they're students at at school at university. How how did that go down with them? Did they think you were completely bonkers? Well, mainly yes. <laughs> um, there were quite different reactions from both of them. Um, we told our daughter, and she was incredibly practical. You know, you, right? I'm going to send you a new phone. You've got to keep it charged. You've got to call me every day, and don't fall off a cliff. Um, my son, we told him, and he was like, "Oh wow, yeah, that's so cool." <laughs> yeah, very different. Um, and and. But- and one of, the, one of the things that happens during this book is it's a negotiation with what is home. Because you have lost your home. You've lost everything that you, that you had built up over such a long time. Yes, yes. And we did start that walk thinking that we had, we'd lost those stone walls that surrounded us, those, those things that I thought were home, what formed home. And I thought I would never feel that sense of what home was again. But, uh, but the path... It, it taught us to look at home from another angle. Which is? Which is really... I think, I think we learnt very much that home wasn't about those walls. It, it actually came to be what gives us a sense of safety and security. And for me, that would always be my family, whether they were right there on the path next to me or scattered across the country. It, it would always be them. And and being in that natural environment because that really had been from my childhood my safe place being in the nature and in the wild environment was the place where I felt the safest mm. so yeah um, and it, we'll come back to some of the way you write about that a bit later mm. but I just want to ask you about how you set about writing this you'd never written before I hadn't no um I started to write it because, um, well, we had a guidebook with us while we were walking, Paddy Dillon's lovely little guidebook to the coast path that has this great description of the path and an OS map that runs right through the book that covers the whole path. And each night in the tent, we'd, uh, we'd written in the margins of the guidebook where we'd camped or the people we'd met and strange experiences we might have had on the day. Um, And it was probably two years after we'd finished walking when I started to realise 
that it hadn't just been a physical journey, it had been a huge emotional journey for us as well. Um, and I started to thumb through that guidebook and I thought, I'm going to write these notes up because one day, Moth's disease would take his memory and I would have something then that I could put in front of him and say, remember what we did, you know, just keep trying. But as I started to write those notes up, they very quickly turned into a narrative and then there was just no stopping it. I was writing a book. <laughs> and, and so this is a, a story of a journey, but it's also a story of a physical journey, but it's also a story of an emotional journey. Yes. And, and it, it's very striking that um, actually, in a way, what you're doing is you're enacting the five stages, the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief before... Oh, right. Uh, sorry? Right, okay. Do you, do you know what I mean? You're going, it, because you, 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 start, you, you go through anger, denial, bargaining, depression, acceptance, don't you? All those emotions. Okay, yes, yes, I suppose we did. <laughs> yes. Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> no. that, that not, I mean, that must have occurred to you. Um, I've got to say, I didn't know much about stages of grief, other than I was feeling it. <laughs> but yes, when you lay it out like that, yes, we did. Yeah, we did go through those stages. And, um, and we did. We, be, we began that walk in a state of absolute anxiety and despair and fear about what the future would hold, not just with regards to finding a home again, but with regards to um, Moth's health. Um, and we thought, you know, I really thought when we started walking, that as we walked, we'd be able to talk through all that, talk through how we'd come to that point and um, how, formulate a plan for how we would go forwards. But... As, as we walked, we found we weren't really talking about anything much at all, um, other than where the next bag of noodles was going to come from. Yeah, there are a lot of noodles. A lot of noodles, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, but there was something so magical about following that strip of wilderness. I don't know if anybody's ever, ever walked the southwest coast path at all, but if, if you haven't, it's, um, it's a very narrow path that runs along the cliff tops, and it follows the cliff all the way, of, for the whole 630 miles. And it, it becomes like a little world of its own as you walk day after day after day, with the ordinary world just on one side and then that endless horizon of the sea on the other side. And as we walked, just taking the next step and the next step, that in itself became, it became a, our success, you know, to be able to take that next step. And we found that just to follow that strip of wilderness became our reason to go on. And it almost became like a walking meditation, really. Whereas our heads were empty most of the time and just merely focused on the act of walking. Mm. And so you're, you're, you're eating very little, you're, you're exhausted, you're cold, you have a, a sort of vivid description of being wet or everything is wet. Yes. I mean, it sounds like an absolute horror show to me. I can imagine, I can imagine it. not being able to dry yourself for weeks. Yes, well, maybe we didn't have... Um, most of the physical comforts that would have made it a little bit easier. But, um, yes, we were wet a lot of the time. If it wasn't raining, there was sea spray, or it was so baking hot that we were, we were just sweating all the time. And so everything was damp and sticky with salt all the time. Um, and we didn't have much money. Um, we, we started out with £48 a week, which very quickly reduced to £30 a week. And then often much less when things like realising we hadn't cancelled the direct debits and we were paying insurance on a home we no longer had. And, and we'd be down to £6 to last a week. And hunger, hunger was our main, our main 
friend, really. And, uh, but there was something incredibly magical in all of that because we couldn't afford campsites, so we were wild camping. And that in itself became the beauty of what we were doing. To, to not know where we would wake up, really, because we often camped in the dark. So the next morning was often a real surprise to find where we were. Sometimes we'd be right on the very cliff edge with only a metre between us and a, a few hundred foot drop. Or other times to find that we'd camped on top of a, a really precipitous, awkward piece of land where the sea had hollowed it out below. Um, but then there were other moments like the day when we woke up and we were in this beautiful little meadow where there were thousands and thousands of ladybirds hatching into their first flight and just crawling from everything and just taking flight. Or another morning, another foggy morning on a wet hillside and we were just sitting in this field of cows as the sun started to come up and it was lighting the headlands one by one just as the seals were calling in the coves below. And... That, that overtook the exhaustion and the, the hunger and the thirst and, and it became what drew us forwards. It gave us a reason, mm. a reason to go on. Mm. So you were, you were doing this walk, you were very different to all the other walkers, most of the other walkers that you encountered along the, la- the way, who some of them had their luggage taken, they were going to bed and breakfasts. Yes. Uh, and uh, how was that, meeting them? How did, you, did those encounters go? That must have been quite hard sometimes. Well, it, it was quite a surprise that luggage transfer actually existed, that people could, <laughs> people could go to a B&B and have their luggage sent forwards. And we were there lumbering along with our huge rucksacks um, and most of these people were doing you know, quite sizeable sections of the path but maybe not as far as we were going um, so that was, that was we did feel just a tad jealous of just being able to hand over that rucksack was too much, too much to bear sometimes um, but at the same time we, we met a few group, groups of younger people who were backpacking and uh, when they realised, you know, how far we were going, they were like, but you're too old. <laughs> you're too old to be doing this. How can you be doing this? And um, that came as quite a shock to us, not only to be called old, but to be considered too old to be, to be walking that distance. And I think that's, that's the wonders of youth, isn't it? I think everything stops at 35. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about some of those young people. So, so one, one thing that this book does is, is it's, you, you're actually observing from a, 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 the outside little pockets of how people live their lives in these sort of very cloistered places where people don't see each other. Yeah. And sometimes that's, that's good and fascinating, like, for example, the surfer boys that you, you mm. discovered who took you in. Tell, tell us about yes. that. Well, we met a few, quite a few people who, who themselves were either homeless or living in very awkward circumstances, mainly because they couldn't afford to rent in the areas where they, where they had their livelihoods. So they were, they were doing seasonal work or, or very rural work that was minimum wage or all of the other rural issues that surround income. Um, and um, we met groups of people who were, who were living in woods and people under bridges and then other groups like the surfers who lived in, in horse boxes and sheds. Um, just a group of people, young people that worked 
in their local communities as surf instructors or waitresses and, and they were living in literally in horse boxes and there was a, a, a real community of them living that way because they couldn't even afford to rent a flat. Yeah. And then, then they were going to go off to Thailand in the, uh, yes, in the winter. Yes. <laughs> yes, they were. Because they had found a way to live so frugally, what little income they were earning took them to Thailand for the winter. Yeah, so we were very, very tempted to join them, but they too thought we were maybe too old, <laughs> strangely. <laughs> so this is part of a story about, um, about the way people, rural people, people live in rural communities, the forgotten people in yes. rural. We don't talk about these communities. So who, who is doing the, the labouring? You know, they have no security, they have very little income. That's a, it's very, very difficult in many rural areas to find a secure income because, as I said, a lot of the seasonal work is taken up by people you know, who, can't, who can't find anything else. So there are people who are doing seasonal work, there are people who are, who are on minimum wage, zero-hours contracts, and um, income and housing in rural areas became very apparent to us that it's a huge issue that is greatly overlooked. And you met a, a population, we talked about the young people, but of older, redundant people as well, who, who were trying to live a lot, uh, sort of keep living in the environment to which they, where they'd always lived, but without any means of supporting themselves. We did, a, a community of people who lived in a wood, um, people that came and went with their circumstances from the wood, um, they'd created a community there, um, and most of them worked um, on the land, really, um, on the land with with very um, unpredictable income that unfortunately landlords just don't accept as being um, something that they're prepared to take on. So, yeah. so they're falling underneath the benefits net? Under the benefits net, under the homelessness net, under every net, really. Um, but it's, those communities certainly showed us that uh, the statistics that are held uh, regarding homelessness um, are, aren't correct because there are so many more people that have no homes but but haven't been registered for one reason or another or sofa surf or or just temporarily live with with other people um you had one account of yes of i can't remember which town it was you went to and they, they'd registered 260 people or something, and they, but they couldn't, if somebody was asleep on the street, they couldn't wake them up to ask them if they were homeless, Well, that's even if they were out and saw them in the streets That's asleep. right, yeah, that's the way that, um, that we were told that um, the, the homeless charities and the authorities count homeless people, that they have to be within a certain radius at a certain time of day, and they have to be appearing to be creating somewhere to sleep, but not asleep. Because if they're asleep, they can't ask them if they're homeless because they're not allowed to wake them up. So, so those figures disregard half the people that they come across because they don't fit within the boxes they have to tick. So it's, it became very quickly apparent that um, the housing statistics, the homelessness statistics are, are way lower than the actual figures. Mm. Yeah. So how about what this did for your sense of yourself and what, you know, you were there, you were suddenly having a completely different relationship with people who a few months earlier were just like you. Yes. How did, yeah. what did that make you think about? It was, it was very difficult because, um, 
because we were together, we didn't see ourselves in a different light. So to us, we were still us, but without a home. Um, but it quickly became apparent that other people didn't see us in that light. Um, so when people passed us on the path, which, as I said, is very narrow in places, it's only about a foot wide, we, you, you have to have a conversation with them. And um, they'd see us with the big rucksacks, and people would say, well, how come you've got so much time to walk so far? And in the early days, we were quite honest, and we would say, well, it's because we've uh, lost our home, and we've got nowhere to go, so we're just walking. And the reaction would be to almost physically recoil, to draw the dog in on a retractable reed or gather their children, which was a real shock to us because we, were, we just hadn't encountered homelessness before, living rurally ourselves. It's not something that we'd seen much of. Um, I think the lowest point for me came on the north coast uh, in, the, in the early weeks of the walk. Um, uh, we were already down to our last few coins, so we were standing outside the shop considering whether or not we could afford to buy anything um, and counting those last few coins, which had become really precious by that point. Um, I didn't notice at the time, but there was a, a Labrador dog tied up to a railing behind me, and uh, a lady came around the corner of the shop with a huge white dog that leapt at the Labrador, caught my rucksack and spent, sent the coins flying out of my hand. Well, they were like gold dust, so I was straight down on the pavement with my hand down the drainage grill, catching these coins, you know, as you do on a Tuesday. And, uh, <laughs> and as I was lying there, still with my hand down the drainage grill, because I couldn't quite reach them, um, this woman started poking me with her foot and saying, what are you doing? So to have people like you here, drunken tramps in the street, get up. And I was, I was lying there, and I was like, she's not talking to me. And then realised that actually she was talking to me. And I think that was, that was the moment where that sense of myself, my sense of who I was in my own life, never mind the, the wider world or society in general, it just started to completely fall apart. Um, and when you lose that sense of who you are, it's, it's not far to rock bottom from there. Um, so from then on, when people ask us, um, how come you've got so much time to walk so far? We'd say, oh, well, we've sold our house. We're you know, having a midlife moment going where the wind blows. And then it would be like, oh, wow, inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> so a huge difference between lost our house and sold our house and the people's preconceptions of what homelessness is and how, how people find their way to homelessness. And the prejudices that are built up around that, that was a huge surprise to us, it really was. So you, you've said, you, you re, re, talked about reaching rock bottom and yes. seeing that picture of yourself, because you also see yourself in a mirror in a, yes. in a campsite and realise what you now look like, yes. which is another version of that shock, an internalised yes. version of that shock. Yeah, good, good. I had, I'd lost that shell of who I was before and I'd become something else, something raw, something, something more as part of the environment than, than the person I'd been before. But I think that was part of the healing process, really. I think it was time spent in that wild, natural environment allowed me in so many ways to reconnect to a sense of who I was. 
So if I could read you a little bit yeah. that, that really explains how I was feeling at that time and how, how the path was starting to allow me to rebuild myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just give me two seconds to find it. Is it one of my yellow notes? I think it could be, yes. We had a big negotiation about which yes. bit she'd read because I want her to read all of it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll read you this, which is probably came out of order. Sorry about yeah. that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'll let you. Okay, so we're, we're in a campsite uh, because I'd not been well for a few days. So we, we had to squeeze ourselves onto the edge of a campsite without anybody seeing us. Wind ripped in from the west. I should say, at this point, I've gone outside the tent and it's the middle of the night. <laughs> Start again. Wind ripped in from the west, roaring through the grey broil of cloud, hurling the cumuli east into Devon, long before their water burden hit the ground. I stood outside the tent in the darkness and let the wildness in, swirled up, bound up in the storm's ecstasy, part of a cycle of molecules without end, contained, boundless, imprisoned, set free. I'm a farmer and a farmer's daughter, the land's in my bones. The end of August, September was coming. I should have the sheep penned in the corner of the field, catching and upturning each one, trimming the hooves, dosing for worms, preparing the ewes for the ram. Turning the earth ready for sowing winter corn, autumn preparing for spring, in defiance of the winter to come. I'm cut free from that connection, from the metre of my existence, floating, lost, and unrooted, but I can still feel it. As a child, I was sent to the field to collect a ewe and her newborn lamb, to carry the lamb for the ewe to follow, to bring them both safely to the shelter. I picked the lamb up, but realised the ewe was about to give birth to a second, so I waited, lying on my back in the wet spring grass, clouds rushing overhead and the ewe only feet away giving birth as the first lamb found its feet. I knew then that I was one with everything, the worms in the soil, clouds in the sky. I was part of it all, within everything and everything within my child's head. The wild was never something to fear or to hide from. It was my safe place, the thing I ran to. Our land gave that to our children, growing like saplings in the storm, bent by it, but strengthened at the core, rooted, but flexible and strong, running free in the wind, but guided by it. Now our land was gone, would they keep that? What it had given them? I'd feared I would lose it, that tighter reality, when our land was lost. Sitting in the grass, wet air rushing past, roaring overhead, the dangerous, self-willed, uncontrolled, wild strength of the wind filled me up. Caught by the storm, held up, bonds rebound, chelated, released, regained. I could never lose it. I was as much the storm as I was the dry dust and the high-pitched call of the oyster catchers. All material things were slipping away, but in their wake, a core of strength was beginning to reform. Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Join us next time to hear from Ed Miliband, who has a joyful discussion with Natalie Haynes about his book, Go Big, How to Fix Our World. Help us out by sharing this podcast with your friends or giving us a rating. This podcast was presented by Poppy Evans. See you back here next Friday.